Hello, Richmond Hills. Obviously, I am not with you in person this weekend. I'm very grateful that I can be in San Antonio this weekend. Uh, many of you recall that my father-in-law passed away last year, and uh, this is my mother-in-law's first birthday since that time. And I'm thankful that I can be there along with Jamie and uh, my mother-in-law's two other children and family to celebrate uh, this important day in the life of this great lady. But I'm also thankful that due to the uh, wonders of modern technology, I can be here and continue our study of the great servant of God named Elijah. So be opening in your Bibles, please, to 1 Kings chapter 18, and we'll be reading from there in just a moment. I want to start with a story about a young family that leaves church one Sunday, and they go over to the wife's mother's house for Sunday dinner. She set an elegant table, and when the food was uh, on the table, her young son just grabs a bunch of food and begins to eat. And she says, Johnny, we haven't blessed the food yet. You know at home we always say a prayer before we eat. He says, Mama, we don't have to say a prayer here. This is Grandma's house. She knows how to cook. (laughs) Now, there may be a time when prayer is not the immediate Need, For example, in the story of the Good Samaritan, those two guys that walked by the man in the ditch didn't need to go past him and pray. They needed to get off their donkey and help him. That's a time when prayer is not the immediate need. Or maybe you find yourself in a context that's just obviously evil, that exists for no other purpose than to seduce people into sin. That's not the time to pray for protection. That's the time to get out of that place. Be like Joseph, leave your cloak and just flee. So I'm not saying that every single moment is a time where the first need is to pray. I am saying that one of those moments is when we discern the will of God. You see, some might think, well, if we know what God's will is in a situation, God is sovereign. He's on the throne. If that's what his will is, we don't need to pray about that, but I'm going to suggest differently today, and I think you'll agree as we study. You remember that Elijah had told Ahab that we need to decide once and for all who's truly the God of Israel. You say Baal is, I say Yahweh is, and you say Baal brings rain. And so my God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is not going to send rain to this land to expose Baal as a fake God. So for over three years, there is no rain in the land. Now, notice verse 1 of chapter 18. It says that after a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Now, here's my question. Wouldn't God's announced intention... To send rain to the land, make praying for rain unnecessary. It hasn't rained in over three years, but why do you need to pray that it start raining? Because God has already said, go back to Ahab, I'm going to send rain. But evidently, Elijah did not think God's announced will precluded the importance of prayer. So let's start reading in verse 41 of chapter 18. We've just had the great uh, contest at Carmel. 
The god Baal has been exposed as a fake. The prophets of Baal have been slaughtered. The people realize that Yahweh is the true God of Israel. Let's watch what Elijah does next. Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat, and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile... The sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain came on and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. And I love this part. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now Jezreel is 18 miles away. So imagine what's going through Ahab's mind as the rain falls and he sees this prophet cloak tucked in his belt, outrunning his chariot all the way to Jezreel. Certainly, it was a wonderful, supernatural, God-blessed day. But let me ask you this. Why did Elijah pray? Now, if God does not reign in heaven, there's no point in asking for rain or anything else from heaven. But does God's sovereignty exclude prayer's necessity? I think the story argues otherwise. In fact, I'd like you to write this down. I think the Bible teaches that it's God's will that we ask for His will to be done. In fact, throughout the Bible, I think we see that the sovereign God often makes the sovereign choice to accomplish His will only after he's been asked to do it. An example of this is the captivity of the people of Israel in Babylon. Jeremiah the prophet, before they went, brought a word from the Lord. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. And after 70 years of captivity, I will bring you back to this land. I will let you ask me to do this for you. So fast forward, after 70 years of captivity, we read in Daniel chapter 9, that in the first year of Darius, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God, and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Notice he said, once I knew what scripture made clear was God's will, I began to pray for it. You see, prayer is not letting God in on our will. Prayer is lining up our hearts to his will. Prayer is asking God to make things be the way God wants them to be. Prayer is asking God to fulfill the desires of his heart. And when he does, and when God moves, and when God 
accomplishes His will on earth, we can see it and we can say, looks like rain. There is evidence of the rule of God. Now, one day, every knee is going to bow and acknowledge the rule of God. But Jesus taught us to pray this day for a glimpse of the future. We are to pray that right now there will be tangible expressions of the rule of God on earth. And so we pray like he taught us in Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom is come wherever his will is done. Wherever his rule is present. And so our passion in our prayers should be the same of the angels in heaven because in heaven there's only one will and the angels obediently joyfully immediately move to accomplish the will of God we should pray with the same passion the angels have to see the will and rule of God fulfilled and a man that the Bible says is just like us a man named Elijah can help us here And so I want us to notice some things about his prayer that can bless our prayer life as we look for the reign of God. The first principle I'm calling the just do it principle. You see, Elijah did what anyone else in Israel could have done. What somebody else should have done. But which evidently no one but Elijah actually did. Simply pray for God's name and rule to be exalted in Israel. See, the reign of God does not come by studying about prayer, by affirming how great prayer is, by promoting prayer. It comes by actually praying. I think this is something Elijah learned in those three years by that brook in Kareth and staying with that widow. He learned the importance of finding a context where God can get your undivided attention. I think that's why it says he walked up to the top of that mountain to pray. He had learned in those years in seclusion by the brook. Or the story, remember, where he took the widow's son up into the upper room. He had learned the importance of finding a place where God gets your undivided attention. Attention. I think sometimes finding a place to pray is as important as finding a time. And I also think that culture conspires to rob us of time and place. See, I've learned that prayer must be an intentional priority. If I just wait for a time and place to appear for me to pray, I'm never going to do much praying. You see, we don't pray because there's nothing else we can do. We pray because we believe there's nothing better we can do. After all, remember who it is that is personally delivering our request to God. Have some of you uh, noticed the last few weeks some attention about a story uh, that's a bit of a scandal in England? It seems that uh, Sarah Ferguson, the Duchess of York, evidently offered some businessman access to her former husband Uh, one of the princes, uh, for a a sum of about three-quarters of a million dollars. She offered access to royalty. Well, the thing is, 
we can speak to the King of Kings and we don't have to pay a price. It's already been paid. Jesus is standing there ready to personally deliver our request. And so, use it. When it comes to prayer, just do it. Earth is waiting for heaven to move, but too often heaven is waiting for earth to ask. After the just do it principle, I think we see in Elijah's story what I call the don't deserve it principle. You know, a believer is often most vulnerable after a great victory. And Elijah has had an enormous spiritual victory on the top of Carmel. But notice how it says he approached God. He bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. The same man that stood tall in the presence of sin bowed low in the presence of God. Why? Because this whole episode had not been about defending the honor of Elijah. It had been about vindicating the honor and the name of God. And so he prays, this is not about me, God. This is about you, about your honor, about your reputation. And so he submits himself and kneels before his God. By the way, have you noticed in Scripture that whenever the posture of someone praying is mentioned, it is almost always in a place of submission. People kneel before the Lord. People lie down on the ground prostrate before the Lord. People stand up with their arms raised in the international sign of surrender before the Lord. And I do think posture is important. I do think our physicality is connected to our spirituality. And and I would suggest to some of you, especially in your alone times in prayer, that you try praying in postures that physically humble you before the Lord. See, here's the deal. God is not going to use proud people to accomplish His will because it creates confusion about who should get the glory. Remember that God does not pay wages because no one obligates God. He doesn't pay wages. He does give gifts. And so when we pray to God, we don't come on the basis of our goodness. We come on the basis of His goodness. He's the gracious God. We don't deserve it. There's nothing about our nature that deserves it. But we plea because His nature is gracious. And so Elijah, first, he prays, just do it. Second, he gets humble before the Lord, don't deserve it. And third, and I think this one is very important, I call it the what is it principle. Uh, Let me illustrate with a story I heard about a father and his son that went to a diner together for lunch. And it was a very noisy diner. They were sitting up at the uh, table together on benches and the father just looked at his son and said, you know what? It's so noisy in here. Let's just say a silent prayer. So they each bowed their heads. And then after a moment, the father lifted his head, but he noticed that boy just kept bowing and bowing and bowing. And after the longest time, he finally raised his head. And the father said, son, what were you praying about for so long? And the boy said, well, how would I know? It was a silent prayer. I'm not so sure that many of our prayers are not too unlike His. In other words, 
What exactly are we praying for when we pray? See, Elijah, I believe, was very specific in naming and claiming the will of God. We know what he prayed because James tells us in chapter 5 of his letter, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. You see, Elijah knew exactly what it would look like for God's rain to come in that place, in that time, for that people. He knew specifically what it would look like, and he asked for it. Now, think for a moment. If all that was cliche-ridden and generic was removed from our prayers, what would be left? We pray prayers like, Lord, uh, guide, guard, and direct us, and bless the missionaries. What have we asked God to do? How would we know if that prayer is even answered? I think sometimes we pray too much about our kingdoms. Um, Lord, solve my problems and give me fewer hassles. But prayer is supposed to be about God's kingdom. Seeing things on earth come in line with His heart's desires. And so I honestly think sometimes one of our problems in prayer is not that we're asking for too much. But we're asking for too little. We're praying about our kingdoms and not His. Some of you will remember I've used this story. Back in the 1960s, Arnold Palmer was one of the most popular athletes in the world and, and some would say the world's greatest golfer. He went on an exhibition to Saudi Arabia. The king there admired his skill and after a match, the word got to Palmer that the king, one of the richest men in the world, would like to give him a present. Now... Being a typical Westerner, Palmer shrugged his shoulders and declined and said, well, let the king know that he doesn't need to give me anything. His hospitality is gift enough. But he was made to know it would actually be rude not to ask for something when the king wants to give you a gift. So Palmer shrugged and said, well, um, tell the king he can give me a golf club. According to the story, the next day, a servant came to his hotel room and gave him the deed to a 300-acre golf club. And the story has a moral. If you're asking the king, don't think small. What would it look like for the rule of God, the reign of God to come to this place and this time? Let's ask for it. The Bible says in 1 John 5, 14, we can be confident he will listen to us whenever we ask him for anything in line with his will. So, what is it you've been praying for? Does it look like rain? The fourth principle. I call it the stay at it principle. You notice that when Elijah is on Carmel with the prophets and he starts to pray for fire to fall, it falls immediately. Here's a supernatural event. It took one prayer and it happened. Then he starts to pray for rain, which is a fairly natural occurrence, we would say. But he doesn't just pray one time and the rain comes. He has to pray seven 
times before the rain comes. So, question. If he only had to pray once for fire to come down from heaven, why does he have to ask God seven times for rain to come down? And here's the answer. I don't know. I don't know. And I'm not making light of it. I mean, I really don't know why sometimes God answers our prayers almost immediately. And then sometimes we pray and we pray and we pray and we wait and we wait. I know some of you right now are carrying great burdens you have prayed about for so long. I am too. I don't believe there is such a thing as unanswered prayer. I do believe there is such a thing as discarded prayer. Prayers that were given up on before the answer came. Maybe that's why both of Jesus' parables about prayer... One's about a neighbor who gets interrupted in the middle of the night by a man needing bread. One's about a widow who continues to approach an uncaring judge. Both of Jesus' parables on prayer have the same point. Don't quit praying. Stay at it. Prayer warriors are prayer waiters. And so... If you have a kingdom burden, stay at it until you get either a clear yes from God or a clear no. And I believe staying faithful means also staying watchful. And so principle number five is what I call the look for it principle. Do you ever pray more out of a sense of obligation than anticipation. You pray because you think you ought to, not because you're really expecting prayer to make a difference. Notice that Elijah is not just wishing for an answer to his prayer. He is watching for it. Kingdom prayers are prayed by people who expect the king to show up. You see, that's why I think the Spirit of God recorded these stories in the Bible for us to encourage us. These great miracle stories in our Bible are not there so that we can read about what God could or did do. They're there to encourage us to remember what God can and still does do. The psalmist said in chapter 5, verse 3, Listen to my voice in the morning, Lord. Each morning I bring my request to you and wait expectantly. When we pray, we need to always be looking for the coming rain. The Bible says Elijah was a man just like us. Now what that means is that we can pray just like Him. And whenever you see a move of God on the earth where it looks like rain, you can be sure somewhere somebody has been praying. Joseph Stoll used to be the president of the Moody Bible Institute. 
And he had some students that were going back to China, graduates who were part of the underground exploding house church movement in China. And he made the comment that since they were graduates of a prestigious evangelical seminary, they would probably expect to go back to China and be leaders in the churches there. But they looked kind of surprised and said, no. When we go back to China, they will listen to us pray. And then they will determine whether or not we should be leaders. I believe God has always used rather ordinary people to do extraordinary things because their hearts were in line with the desires of the heart of God. And so I'm closing with this question for you. Where are you praying for rain? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a battle cry. Your kingdom come is a cry of rebels. It's a cry of disciples of another kingdom. A kingdom that that they are convinced will prevail. It's the cry of those of us who refuse to believe that the way things are is the way things have to remain. And so let me ask you, where are you crying? Not about your little kingdom, but about God's. He still does extraordinary things through ordinary people like you and me and Elijah. Some years ago when I preached a series on revival, one of the favorite stories I came across in my reading involved Dwight L. Moody, the man for whom the school is now named. He was one of the great evangelists of the 19th century. And he went on a vacation to England. He wasn't really planning to preach, but he met a minister there who asked him if he would be a guest at his church the following Sunday. And so Moody went to that church and agreed to preach. And he would later say it was one of the most spiritually numbing experiences of his life. He said there was an absolute spirit of deadness in the place. In fact, he said the only thing more depressing than preaching at that church was remembering that he had made a promise to come back that night and preach there again. But he kept his promise. He came back that night to preach. And he said as soon as he came into the place, he felt spiritual energy. At the end of his message, he asked if anyone would like to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. And almost the whole room stood up. He thought, they must be confused. They didn't hear what I said. So he said, after I'm through, if you would like to learn more about how to receive Christ, meet me in this small room. Well, after the service, the room was so packed, people couldn't get in it. The minister asked Moody, what's going on? And Moody said, I have no idea. The minister said, what should I do? And Moody said, I think tomorrow you should have more preaching. Well, Moody went on to get on a train to go on and complete his vacation. But when he got off the train, there was a cable message waiting for him. Please come back, Mr. Moody. Revival has broken out. So he came back. He stayed 10 more days at that church. And in the course of those 10 days, 400 people committed their lives to Jesus Christ. And Moody, again, was perplexed. What happened 
in that church. But he later learned. That morning that he had preached, a couple went home. And the woman's sister, an invalid named Marion Adlard, was waiting. She was confined to a wheelchair. They fixed her lunch. They brought it on a tray. And as they did, she asked, well, did anything unusual happen at church this morning? They said, not really. Some American named Moody preached. She said, take my tray away. I must pray and fast all day. Two years earlier, this 86-year-old invalid woman had read a sermon in the paper by a Mr. Moody from America. And every day for two years, she had prayed that God would bring Mr. Moody from America to her church to bring a revival. And because of the prayers of that one inconspicuous, barely noticed saint, 400 people met the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to suggest the second greatest thrill of a believer is to witness a move of God and say, looks like rain. And the first greatest thrill is to realize you had asked for it. And so I want us to do that now. I want us to pray for rain.